Hey, how's it going, everybody? This is Chris, and uh, this is episode 8 of X-Lapsed, and uh, I don't know if I sound a little bit different today, but today is the maiden voyage for a brand new microphone, because uh, I guess uh, for the last few episodes, um, my voice was dropping out, and uh, I guess it stands to reason that microphone that I was using was about five years old, probably had about you know 10,000 hours of, uh, of recording on it, so I figure... Might as well take the plunge now that uh, microphones are, you know, you could find them in the stores again. Uh, for a little while there, you couldn't find them for, you know, manufactured, suggested real retail price or whatever that is. But uh, I guess, you know, we're coming out of it. So uh, I was able to find one uh, uh, relatively uh, quickly. Just had to go to a few different stores rather than, uh, you know, drive all over town. But uh, we are talking about Powers of X number four today. That had a cover date of November 2019. Story is called Something Sinister, which makes me wonder if we're going to pay off on one of my weird hot take predictions. Um, written by Jonathan Hickman, Art R.B. Silva, Colors Marty Gracia, Letters VCs Clayton Cowles, uh, Design Tom Muller, Edits Bisa White Sabolski, $5 book, on sale September 11th, 2019. Now, uh, Stop me if you heard me say, stop me if you heard me say this a few times by now, but we open with a quote. Moving on. Uh, then we get a double page spread of credits that I won't comment on. Now, we actually open into the comic portion of this, and uh, we're in X to the Zero, which is to say X-Men Year One. Now here, I'm going to assume that Year One is more of like a, a generational name than actually discussing the exact first year of the X-Men, because... To be honest, it's the only way I can really wrap my head around it, because, uh, you know, last time we were in X1, or X0, year one, uh, Xavier met with Magneto on his island in the Bermuda Triangle, and, uh, you know, I th Mag Magneto's island first appeared back in Uncanny X-Men 145, which was in May 1981, which just so happened to be the, you know, the final post-Uncanny name change for uh, that volume that I had to track down to complete my run. It was a, a bittersweet thing because by that point I had dropped the uh, most recent Uncanny run, that one that went weekly uh, and had the rotating writers uh, on it. I had dropped that uh, after only getting the first issue because DCBS sent it to me. I didn't order it, but DCBS sent it to me anyway, and I opened it and didn't recognize anybody, and I was like, nah, can't do it, especially at the weekly rate and the um, exorbitant price. So I picked up... Uh, uncanny 145 and it was a little bittersweet because had i been still collecting uncanny that would have been the last piece of the puzzle from the name change on but uh 
me being me, I did go back and get that entire uh, recent run uh, filled in. But here in our opening pages of this story, we see Professor X is in his like Jim Lee or animated series era yellow hover chair. Uh, back in that first one, he was in his regular wheelchair. So it feels like, I don't know, uh, that would show up in the comics 10 years later. So 1990, 1991 era. So I gotta figure that year one might be more generation one or wave one or era one. Uh, I might just be thinking too hard. <laughs> I might be trying to sound like more of an ex-historian than, than maybe I am these days. Uh, but I'm just trying to make sense of it and trying to do so in a way that uh, that doesn't frazzle me all that much. Anyway, Xavier in his yellow chair and Magneto have arrived at Bar Sinister. So I guess here's where Mr. Sinister shows up. Actually, it's a lot of Mr. Sinister show up here. Uh, now, after arguing a bit with a guard, doorman, bouncer, maitre d', uh, which is revealed to be a Sinister, uh, Magneto hurls this guy at a ruby wall. I mean, this entire place looks like rubies. It's worth noting that this Sinister both makes, makes fun of both uh, Xavier and Magneto. Uh, Magneto, in particular, for having a cape. Um, and we'll talk more about the cape in a little bit, but I don't remember... Sinister uh, being this, you know, caddy? <laughs> I don't remember that at all. Um, Xavier and Magneto are finally granted access to the head Sinister, and it's uh, worth noting that, you know, everyone here looks like Mr. Sinister. Now, Bar Sinister, if I'm remembering right, showed up or was at least referred to during the 2015 Secret Wars. It's been, you know, I can't even say that I read that um, as deeply as maybe it... Uh, as maybe it needed to be read. Uh, that was a very, very skimmy affair for me. I was not feeling it at all. Um, so here we are. Our guys are placed in front of the head sinister, who, before getting down to business, informs Magneto that he absolutely loves his cape. And this is weird. Um, I, I laughed. Don't get me wrong. I thought this was funny. But I don't remember Sinister acting this way. Yeah, I remember hearing uh, back in the long ago that he was maybe sort of kind of modeled on, like, Frankenfooter from Rocky Hara, but I never expected him to act quite this way. And, uh, you know, also, I know Sinister has a cape of sorts. <laughs> I, I, I've got that Toy Biz action figure with that horrid, you know, shell-like, ribbony cape, and I know the pain of trying to get that figure to stand, much less articulate while wearing it. Then again... This is the past, right? So maybe this is where he is. Uh, this is where he comes around to getting a cape, or maybe we'll find out a little bit more as we read through this issue. Anyway, this lead sinister turns to an aide and asks him why he doesn't have a cool cape like Magneto. Upon learning that it simply slipped the aide's mind, lead sinister has the man executed, which I guess is something. Uh, now this is like really super cartoony violence here, which. Again, isn't what I think about when Mr. Sinister comes to mind. Um, I think more of like a colder and more calculated villain, but, uh, you know, uh, I'm at the point where I guess I just gotta roll with the punches and get with the times, um, so I'm not going to let myself get hung up on this, especially if they're able to explain it away, which eh, maybe they do, maybe they don't. Now, Xavier approaches this lead Sinister with the reason for their visit. Now, they had heard that Sinister is working in genetics, and he's been attempting to collect DNA from the entire world in order to build a library. I think we've met a librarian during this event, which 
<laughs> makes me worry about where we're going to be, what we're going to be reading post staples in this very issue, and uh, we'll get there. Sinister takes this as a slight. You know, Xavier saying that he's into genetics and all this good stuff, uh, kind of thinking like Xavier and Magneto might be judging him for his hobby, I guess. Xavier assures him that this isn't the case, and even suggests that Sinister maybe take it a step further. Maybe devote himself to collecting and cataloging, cataloging mutant DNA. So, now this is, this is the sort of Sinister I'm used to, so maybe, uh, maybe we're getting somewhere. Now, lead Sinister hems and haws. Uh, Magneto informs him that he's seen the future, and he knows that sinister, the mutantdom will be Sinister's domain. But this lead Sinister declines the offer, only to have his head blown off by another Sinister. And this one has the awful cape, so there we go. He introduces himself as the Sinister with the mutant gene, so uh, I guess this is the Sinister we've been looking for then. Uh, after referring to himself as being absolutely fabulous, he agrees to work with Xavier and Magneto and makes their uh, partnership seem really kind of skeevy and pervy. He says, uh, he asks them, what's next for our sinful secret confederacy? Which is a skeevy dude. Um, I don't remember Sinister being fabulous. <laughs> but uh, again, we're going to roll with the punches here. Uh, this scene actually wraps up with Xavier sort of kind of mind-wiping Sinister to forget that this visit had ever occurred, which is something, definitely something that year one Charles would do. Uh, and it's also a pretty brilliant way to go about this. Um, and we'll talk a little bit more about that later. From here, we jump into info pages, two of them. And uh, these are info pages that I'd put in the good column. I like them a lot. Uh, they fill us in on a whole lot of stuff, which otherwise could have taken up like an entire issue of a comic, or at least two issues of a current year comic. Uh, this is a look at the news and gossip coming from Bar Sinister. And they vacillate between being kind of silly and kind of useful, and we'll look at them all here. There are ten of them plus two uh, secrets revealed, or nine of them plus two. We'll, we'll get there. The first secret says a particularly sinister sinister is wearing red shoes. I don't know what this means. Um, the only thing I can think of when thinking of red shoes is the Wizard of Oz. Uh, and it's also maybe worth noting that Bar Sinister kind of resembles the Emerald City from Wizard of Oz, only red. I mentioned that, it, you know, the walls were ruby uh, and they are kind of spiky and spiry. Uh, so maybe that's a reference to something or maybe it's just a, uh, no pun intended, a red herring. Secret 2, something about flowers and a rather fashionable mutant, so I'm guessing this might be Jumbo Carnation from the Morrison run. Secret 3, a deceased red-headed pretender. I mean, that's an easy one. That's definitely Madeline. Secret 4, it's, I got a quote here. It says, almost no one noticed what washed ashore. And, uh, well, I sure didn't. <laughs> you know, perhaps this will play out when we hit, like, the Dawn of X proper. And, uh, you know, everybody's operating off of Krakoa at that point. I really don't know what this might be alluding to, but I like that. I like that it might be a reference to something yet to come. It's going to, for someone like me, it's going to keep my eyes open and peeled for uh, anything that might fall into that column. We, uh, before going on to number five, we get a sinister secret revealed. And here we get the revelation that Sinister got his mutant gene from John Proudstar, the original Thunderbird who died shortly after Giant Size number one. 
And I guess his as, is as good as DNA as any, uh, especially since he'd gotten so little time to actually be you know, fleshed out on panel. So I think there's a lot that can be mined here without necessarily uh, contradicting or, uh, or you know, hurting any of the lore that's already been established. Now, Secret 5, there's a mention of one being the best there is at what he does, so, I mean, that's easy enough to decode. The rest of the statement, however, I'm kind of unsure of. Something about, uh, you know, having a child, and I really don't know what this might be alluding to, but, you know, maybe as we go forward, I'll get it. Secret 6 concerns a progerian mutant. I'd never heard the word progerian before, but a quick Google search, or I, I mean rummaging through uh, the stacks of medical texts I have laying about, uh, reveals that this is a reference to progeria, a rare disease that is characterized by an appearance of accelerated aging in children, which I figure might be a reference to Ernst from a Zorn special class back in the Morrison run. Uh, she always she looked, you know, elderly as a child. I don't know if there is any sort of. Uh, honestly, I haven't. I haven't noticed her since the Morrison run, so she might have loomed large. She might have uh, gotten a snippet, or maybe this is something yet to come. Secret 7 concerns two brothers jumping out of a plane, which, duh, Scott and Alex. Also, rumors of a third brother, and, uh, oh boy, <laughs> there's a subject we could talk about forever. Uh, this third brother is ultimately revealed as being Adam X the Extreme. Well, no, no, it actually wasn't, but it probably should have been. Uh, the third Summers brother was Gabriel Summers, Vulcan, who was revealed uh, during the Deadly Genesis miniseries uh, by uh, Brubaker back uh, by 2005-ish or so. And I'm pretty sure I remember seeing Vulcan on Krakoa when I checked out uh, Dawn of X, X-Men number one. So I think he is there. I think there's even an ad in this very issue for X-Men number one, and I think Vulcan's on it, at least in the background. Uh, Secret 8, something about Apocalypse and the Four Horsemen. Eh, you know. Secret 9, something about younger mutants. And there's a mention of fireworks, which is likely a reference to Jubilee. I mean, it's got to be a reference to Jubilee. And I tell you what... It's been a while since I read any Jubilee, but uh, last I recall, she was a depowered vampire who adopted a baby. <laughs> I mean, the 2010s were such a crappy time to be an X-Fan. Oh, Lord. Um, from here, we get another sinister secret revealed, uh, something about the Inferno event. Uh, I'm not sure if this is the actual Inferno event being referenced, or maybe that bit from Secret Wars 2015. So I think there was an Inferno miniseries that was tied into that. Uh, finally... Secret number 10, something about a mind-wiped sinister, and really not sure what this might be alluding to. Uh, maybe something we're yet to see, or maybe just something that went over my head that I'm unaware of. Now, from here, we go back to comics, and we jump to X to the first, so year 10 or thereabouts. Maybe it's Generation 2, Era 2, however I'm trying to make this work. Uh, and it's a few months ago. So... I mean, a few months is a pretty big chunk of time if we're assigning everything like a firm year, right? So that's further evidence, to me at least, that we're referencing an era, uh, rather than just a, a standard 12-month calendar year. Now, Professor X and Doug Ramsey arrive on Krakoa. Xavier, it's worth noting, is wearing a pith helmet, which kind of, okay, completely reminds me of Cassandra Nova during the Genosian Genocide. He informs Doug that they're on Krakoa, to which Doug's all, Cool, that island that kills mutants. Hooray, that's wonderful. Now, last I read, Krakoa was the lawn on the Jean Grey school, right? During Wolverine and the X-Men? Is that something I'm misremembering? I, I don't think I am. I'm pretty sure that's a thing. 
maybe that's no longer in continuity, or, or maybe there are multiple Krakoas? I don't know. As Xavier leads Doug into the brush to meet Krakoa, we see Doug's arm change into the techno-organic warlockish form. And is that a thing again? I, I, now this one I'm probably misremembering, but I thought Warlock came back like a few years ago. Uh, maybe during that Abnet and Lanning New Mutant series that, that sort of kind of just like flailed around and did nothing between X-Men crossovers. It was just kind of there. I could have sworn Warlock came back, but I could be mistaken. Maybe they're... Maybe they are just bonded. I don't know. Anyway, Doug and the Professor are now stood before the Great Deku Tree, or, you know, Krakoa. From here, we get the origin story of Krakoa, which... Huh, I don't want to put the cart before the horse here, but it looks like the island, which was originally known as Okara, was split in, was split in two by a sword, Apocalypse's sword. So it was cleaved into two islands, Arako and Krakoa. And I know that we've got a big event called X of Swords coming up, so I wonder if this might be an allusion to that. Now, the origin continues with Apocalypse and his horsemen pushing Arako through a chasm, which is then sealed, leaving only Krakoa. So Krakoa, he's, uh, you know, channeling his inner David Lee Roth here, is very sad and lonely, and is only part of a whole, and never to be complete. Now, Doug, after, you know, reporting this to Xavier, he wonders exactly what the Professor has in mind, and... Basically, more or less, what he's supposed to be doing in particular. Xavier shows him via telepathy, and despite some doubts, Cypher is you know, he's pretty much immediately on board. Now, Doug is there, as far as I can discern, to make a mutant language. Which, I mean, it stands to reason with all the Krakoan texts and mentions of the mutants forming their own culture and language. It makes a lot of sense, and uh, honestly, who better than Doug to do it? Next, we get an info page, which might not be... All that helpful, but it looks cool. And, uh, you know, it, it actually probably is the best way to deliver this information. This explains the current Krakoan systems, which includes the interface designed by Doug Ramsey, wherein mutants could all communicate without him to translate with Krakoa, so they all understand this language. Also, we learn some of the stations of Krakoa here. Uh, transit and monitoring is helmed by Sage. Defense and observation is helmed by Black Tom. Secondary and external systems is covered by Trinary or Trinary. Uh, Overwatch and data analysis is covered by Beast. There's also a note, a note about a rumored skunk works and an underground facility where Forge is busy creating all sorts of stuff. From here. <sighs> X to the third, year 1000. I wish we could skip this, <laughs> because up to this point, I've really enjoyed this issue. I've dug the heck out of it, and... Uh, Oh, boy, it grinds to a halt here for me. Now, we rejoin the librarian, Nimrod the Greater, and uh, some more blue-skinned guys. An older one here is a, an elder, I guess. Also, the friggin' Phalanx. Now, they ask if the blue folk will ascend, to which the elder gives a thumbs up, and I could give a crap. The Phalanx produces an orb, which, I guess, takes the essence, or data, or whatever of the blue guy into the technarchy of the Phalanx, maybe? I don't know. And is this orb the same sort of orb that we saw during that baptism at the end of year 100 a few issues ago? Where it like, kind of turned the baby half machiny? Maybe? I don't know. And uh, I suppose I, I really don't care all that much. Evidently, we hear that it worked. And we see that the Blueskins and Nimrod stood before a much larger orb with a glowing center. Inside this glowing center, we can see some sort of swirly inkiness, which... I don't know if that's just artistic, or it might actually be something brewing in there. 
Now, Nimrod the Greater suggests that the Phalanx don't want biological entities, just machines. He says, foreboding, isn't it, librarian? That they want us and not you. So maybe we're headed to a man-versus-machine war? In the future? Maybe? I don't know. Uh, regardless, one of the blue-skinned bios is optimistic that they might have just found a way around their problem. What problem? I don't know. <laughs> Maybe you do. I don't. Uh, we wrap up with another, with uh, yet another blank quote page, or mostly blank quote page. It's worth noting here, the next issue in our lineup is House of X number 5. Now, every issue of this so far has wrapped with a reading order page. And this one, House of X number 5, the next issue we're going to cover, is highlighted in red. There are only three issues highlighted in red. Now, the last one we saw that, uh, that, had this, uh, that had this red highlight on it was House of X number 2. And that's where we learned about, you know, the uncanny lives of Mora. So maybe next issue we're going to uh, have this all turned on our ear again. So I'm looking forward to that, seeing what revelation is to come here. Uh, maybe some of my hot takes I'll be able to finally sweep those away as being nonsense. Or, or maybe, uh, maybe I'm on to something. Who knows? We'll find out soon enough. Okay, so let's talk about this here. I love the first two-thirds of this issue. Uh, not that I hated the end, I just really can't be bothered enough to, to care about it, which might be worse. Uh, this is the sort of high-concept stuff that I, I really couldn't give a rip about, and uh, was more or less what uh, kept me from you know kind of going whole hog into this run. Um, not that I knew this exactly was going to happen, but I had an idea that something of this uh, sort of, I don't know, feeling <laughs> or tone was going to happen. This is no fault of the story. This is just not to my personal tastes. Um, honestly, anytime the X-Men go to the future or into deep space, I check out. I always have. I probably always will. It's not a fault of Hickman, not a fault of the story, not a fault of anybody. It's just not to my tastes, you know? It's a... Uh, I'm sure there are plenty of uh, plenty of X-Men stories or X-Men tropes that uh, that folks just kind of check out when they see. I mean, if it's a brood story, I'm done. If it's a Morlock story, nope. <laughs> you know, anything else I'm cool with. Future, you go into the future, you deal with outer space, you deal with the brood, you deal with the Morlocks, and eh, I'm done. Um, now let's talk a little bit about Xavier and Magneto's visit to Bar Sinister. I really like that we're given an explanation for Mr. Sinister's uh, mutant DNA fixation here, and uh, the mind wipe to finish the scene was perfect. I mean, he's still driven to do what he does, collect mutant DNA, but it's never traced back to Professor X, so that's that's pretty smart. It's a, it's a really uh, great way to, uh, to link these characters uh, and their motivations without... You know, openly incriminating Xavier as being complicit. I mean, he knows what he did, but, uh, I mean, it looks like it'll never be traced back to him, at least not yet. Now, considering, I, I do have one little bit here, uh, you know, Sinister went pretty DNA mad back during, like, the 90s, uh, especially when it came to the, you know, the summers is, is, is. And uh, if you think about that, it kind of makes Xavier look kind of like a, kind of like a prick, doesn't it? <laughs> I mean, he knew all along why Sinister was doing what he was doing and putting, you know, Scott through his paces, but just kind of let it happen without filling his students in on exactly what was going on. Uh, so, I'm not sure how much I like that, but then again, I mean, 
it feels like ever since the 90s, we've been trained not to trust the professor. So this does fit in with that sort of feeling. Um, now, regarding my prediction that the man under the Cerebro helmet might be sinister, or maybe a sinister, uh, I don't know. I don't know. Um, there were a few very curious sinister secrets on those, in those info pages, uh, one of which was about something that washed up ashore. Maybe that's a reference to someone who washed up ashore on Krakoa. Or maybe I'm just trying too hard to uh, make a ridiculous prediction payoff. We'll find out. Uh, one thing that is confirmed here is that, at least at one point, Sinister, Xavier, and Magneto were all in cahoots. They were all on the same page. They all had the same sort of mission. Uh, more about the Sinister Secrets. Uh, and I mentioned I appreciated these as info pages, and uh, definitely... I will hand it to them for this is the right call for this sort of information. This is how you do it. Um, you drop little breadcrumbs, reflect on established lore, but you do so in a way that might inform the future, recent, uh, you know, the recent future or the far-flung future. Uh, seeing references to Inferno, Thunderbird, Jumbo, Friggin' Carnation, all good stuff here. It makes me feel, and this is very important to me, it makes me feel like everything matters, which if I'm being completely honest, is the exact opposite sensation I was expecting from this event. I was expecting this to be, you know, the baby thrown out with the bathwater. Um, not sure how this will all shake out in the end. I guess your guess is as good as mine. Though, nah, I mean, actually, many of you probably don't have to guess since you've read it. So uh, my guess is as good as anyone who hasn't read this yet. Uh, let's talk about Doug and Chuck's trip to Krakoa and the origin story of an island. Uh, the island story, it, well, it happened so far in the past that I have really trouble. I have trouble really investing all that much into it, in, insofar as interest. Um, it's not a bad story, but, uh, you know, I, I really don't have much connection to it at this point. Uh, I appreciate how it ties in with Apocalypse, and we see our first bit of sword action, and it makes me feel like this will ultimately come to a head in the, you know, the upcoming, at the time of this recording, crossover X of Swords. Though... I am open to being completely, to totally, and utterly wrong here. We'll, uh, we'll just, we'll see how it goes. Uh, seeing Cass uh, Xavier in a very Cassandra Nova pith helmet was, uh, maybe foreboding? Maybe? I don't know. I mean, a few episodes ago, I did make the prediction that it might be Cassandra and not Charles under the Cerebro helmet. Maybe that's the case. Maybe this is just an Easter egg to throw us off the scent. Or maybe this is directly aimed at folks like me who read way too much into everything. If so, my hat's off to you. You got me. It was interesting getting to learn a bit about the infrastructure of the Krakoan systems. And I mentioned uh, earlier, this was another fine use of an info page. Because if we think about it, the alternative would be something like the opening scene from uh, Secret Wars. You know, the first one where the heroes are all in that giant room, and they're just telling each other their names and what they do. So it's like, I could picture pages of like, Hi, I'm Sage, and I oversee transit monitoring here at Krakoa Station. So I think the info page is a much better uh, way to deliver this information, and honestly, it takes up less space than a, uh, than a several expository pages might. Now, uh, year 1000. Can't say that I care anything about it. And once again, this is not any fault of the story. This is all my personal taste. The way I look at it, if I wanted stuff like this, I'd read Legion of Superheroes. And I don't. 
so I don't. Hopefully it pays off in a somewhat satisfying way, or if and when, if or when, it begins tying in with the current day stuff, uh, maybe a reread of these bits will be in order so I can better contextualize them. Who knows? I mean, I we're only, you know, what, like two-thirds through this story, so we got, yeah, you know, relatively speaking, we got plenty left to get through. Now, I wonder if it's safe to say we're completely done with the Year 100 crew. You know, at this point, I want to say it's been three issues, three episodes since we heard a peep out of them. So maybe Mora was successful in avoiding that particular future. Or maybe next issue will take place exclusively there. I, I couldn't tell you. I mean, X-Men uh, X-Squared might, uh, might loom large. Who knows? Now, uh, what other bits and pieces do we have here? Um, let's see. Uh, we didn't get anything about all those A-list X-Men dying last issue, or the, the issue of House of X that preceded this, uh, which further lends to the idea that the, uh, the red-highlighted next chapter may be something that'll you know hit us, or at least hit me like a hammer. And I hope it's not going where I think it might be going, but uh, I guess we'll see, won't we? That's about all I've got for this chapter, but uh, before I let you go, I do want to address a little bit of feedback here I got. I got a, a few things here over the past few days. Uh, all really good feedback, helpful feedback. Uh, we're going to start with, uh, with a piece from uh, Wayne Booth, who, uh, left a, who left a comment at the blog. He says, I'm glad you're reading this series, and I look forward to following along. Hoxpox brought me back to the comic shops as I hadn't been invested since the end of Onslaught, which is a long time ago. During my comic shop leave, one friend would always talk about Jonathan Hickman and how great his storytelling was. When I saw press releases for his X-Men project, it piqued my interest, along with the creepy promo art. And I agree, the, the, uh, the, I don't know, what would we, what would we call the promo art here? Is it, uh, uh, I don't know what exactly what words we'd use to describe it, but it is very striking. And uh, it certainly tells you that it's something special and something different. So um, that might actually be what caused me to come back initially, or at least turned my eye back toward the X-Men, is just how, how different it looked. It was very, very uh, striking in its uh, strangeness. Uh, Wayne continues, I thought the entire series delivered. Uh, and it really created a buzz in comic shops and online. It seemed like everyone was enjoying it, and there was a lot of discussion and detective work around the mysteries in the titles. And uh, I can attest to that, because uh, I, I I haven't read any of the discussion. I've stayed as far away from other folks' predictions as possible, because uh, I don't want this spoiled for me. So, But I can definitely relate, because here I am, looking for symbolism everywhere trying to solve this before it's solved for me. And uh, it really makes the the process here a lot more... Uh, I don't know, it makes, makes me feel like I've got skin in the game, you know? Which is a sensation I have not felt in a very long time. Um, I'm thinking, like, the last time I felt anything like this was during, like, the button... Uh, event between Batman and the Flash, uh, a year or two, a year and a year or so into the uh, rebirth, uh, a a landscape or whatever, and that kind of crapped the bed. <laughs> so I, I think it's a uh, once bitten twice shy sort of thing here. But I, I am definitely all in on this, and I am looking for I'm looking for symbols where they probably aren't. Um, 
Now, regarding House of X number one, Wayne would say, I enjoyed the art by Pepe and Marte. Uh, They, along with R.B. Silva, defined the look of the X-Men to me, and I was disappointed that neither of them were brought back to the ongoings in Dawn of X, which is interesting. Um, Yeah, they're not. They're not part of it. It's uh, weird. Um, You'd figure they would do that, but I think what we have, Lionel Francis Yu on X-Men... Um, I'm not really, I couldn't tell you off the top of my head who does the other books, but I know Lionel is on X-Men. Now back to uh, back to Wayne. He says, uh, regarding Hickman, he used data pages sparingly in Fantastic Four. So this was my first real experience with this storytelling technique used by Hickman. I enjoyed it a lot and thought it added another layer to the reading experience. It was a good place to look for clues in the story. For instance, I was able to surmise that the Sentinel head was a mother mold. I was very proud of myself when I shared this with my friends. And uh, that's something I missed. So uh, maybe that's an indictment on me for uh, discounting these info pages because uh, maybe there is information there. It's just not always the most inviting uh, method of information uh, or information delivery for me. Uh, He continues, I remember everyone tripping over the page with Wolverine playing with the kids and the look shared by Xavier and Jean. More on that's to come. And uh, yeah. I tripped over that one myself. It just seemed very, very weird. Uh, it was great seeing the Fantastic Four in these pages, especially after reading Hickman's run, which I did in preparation for this series. The showdown with Scott was great, as you pointed out. Franklin played a significant part in both Fantastic Four and Avengers, and hopefully there'll be some payoff to this moment. He also says, I'm glad Hickman better defined what an Omega-level mutant is. And uh, I agree. I agree. Uh, the, the Franklin bit was... Probably my favorite part of the first issue, just because it was something I've been waiting to pay for to pay off, like ever since I started reading comics. You know, Franklin being mentioned in passing as part of the you know the fabled twelve, that happened before I started reading comics. So I mean, I've always been looking for some sort of a connection. You always find out, or I always, whenever I found out that someone was a mutant, I always wondered why they weren't with the X Men. So when I found out, like, Namor was the first mutant, it's like, well, why isn't he with the X-Men? And eventually he would be, of course. Uh, Like Justice and and Firestar and the uh, New Warriors. I'm like, why aren't they with the X-Men? Scarlet Witch and Avengers. Why isn't she with the X-Men? I always wondered, anytime there was a mutant, why they weren't with the X-Men. And then Franklin, being a mutant, I always wondered, why why isn't he, you know, why isn't he joining Generation X? You know, why isn't he there? Granted, he did stay with Generation X for a little while, but um, he was never, you know, a member um, at least, you know, not in anything canon, I believe. Um, now, to wrap up uh, Wayne's message here, he says, So about the something-is-not-right feeling in this book, I felt the same after my first read, but after thinking about it more, I started to look at it from a different angle. What we're so used to seeing, the X-Men battered, bruised, and in dire straits, that their happiness, safety, and power is weird to us. If a group in society was able to overcome oppression, it might look weird to the oppressors or those witnessing oppression. I started to think that the story might be analogous to blackness. Other things happen to support this, but all of that is for another issue and another episode. So thank you, Wayne, for, uh, for writing in. And uh, I, uh, I never looked at it that way. Um, we are so used to seeing the X-Men just... Not not having good times. And I think, uh, you know, the way that we had the workaround before just seeing them happy is uh, basically they would do the things that we would do if we were happy uh, or with family or, 
like we'd see the X-Men playing baseball, you know? And that, that was like a little slice of normalcy, happiness, and family in the X-Men that was just so different from what we'd usually get that it couldn't help but to stand out as being something special. Here, we don't have the trappings of a baseball game or of a football game or of thrashing around in, uh, in some freshly raked leaves uh, having a good time. This is just them smiling and being happy and being content. And, uh, yeah, we don't see that very often. I mean, without any context, Wolverine's smiling. The professor is smiling. Gene is smiling. And, uh, yeah, I, I want to thank you for, for giving me that point of view because I hadn't thought about it, and it's as clear as the nose on my face here. It's uh, that, that's, that's a heck of an observation, and it really, it really changes the way I'm looking at that scene now. Uh, that, that's, that's super cool. Thank you so much, Wayne. Uh, we have another bit of feedback from, uh, I'm going to try to pronounce this, uh, Damien Druitt Wider. If I'm saying that wrong, please correct me, and I apologize in advance. Now, this is regarding issue six, so episode six. He says, uh, he opens with, I feel the need to step in and defend the various data pages. First, we need to accept that Marvel quite regularly charges $5 for a 20-page comic these days. They don't feel the need to add any extra value to their more expensive books. Every issue of Hoxpox contains at least 20 pages of comics with the data pages replacing house ads. Yes, I I totally get that. I totally get that. And uh, that's kind of why I think I changed my point of view, or at least uh, altered my uh, terminology of the point of view as being uh, over-relied upon rather than uh, shortchanging the reader in any spe- any particular way, because, uh, I mean, Lord knows I want to see more, uh, you know, Axe body spray ads, but, uh, but uh, no, I, I'd prefer data pages and even the blank quote pages to something like that. Um, I just feel like there's an over-reliance on them is all. And, I mean, we'll, we'll get more into this as we, as we go through uh, Damien's letter here. He says, uh, like you, I'm old school and would prefer to see the background information folded into the narrative like it was when Chris Claremont and Louise Simonson were the only X-Men writers. But I think our time has passed. Yeah, that's true. Younger writers and readers see that as artificial and outdated. It also seems to me that a lot of current comic pros found their way to comics fandom via RPGs, so they accept data pages as a natural storytelling device. As you say, some of these are useful, and some really only exist to briefly pause the action. He continues by saying, It's fascinating hearing your predictions. As someone who's read Hoxpox in its entirety, I'm interested to see how far you get with Dawn of X. I was exceptionally excited to read on after Hoxpox and bought the first issues of all the Docs books, but soon started dropping them. At this point, I'm only buying Marauders, having realized I wasn't enjoying the other books enough to continue paying through the nose for them. I wonder if you'll hit that wall as well. Thanks again for the podcast. I'm really enjoying rereading along. Well, thank you so much, Damien. And uh, I could only assume how how interesting my uh, my predictions are here. I'm I'm kind of swinging for the fences with the predictions here. I'm not even playing around with with anything. I'm 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 swinging far because I'm I'm told that there's going to be something in this that's going to shock me. So I am swinging for the fences. <laughs> And trying to get ahead of it. But, uh, no, I could imagine, you know, having read all the twists and turns of this and hearing someone coming in fresh, not knowing the direction, not knowing how the fallout's going to be, uh, just just making hot take after hot take. That's got to be, uh, 
both uh, funny, infuriating, um, and, and, and as you mentioned, fascinating in a way. What you say to close out um, is something I'm hearing a lot, uh, and that, that that's concerning to me. Um, when I first started this show, a lot of the uh, a lot of the feedback I got was how great Hox Pox was, but how Docs Donovex. Uh, kind of under-delivered, or has been under-delivering, and uh, how many people have started dropping titles or dropped out wholesale. That's, um, you know, as someone who's, like, finally investing in this run, and and I've been bit by Marvel before, uh, many, many times, and I'm sure I will be again, uh, many, many times more. But, uh, the very a very common reaction to the Hox Pox Docs era is that House of X, Powers of X are must-reads. Dawn of X, not so much. Unfortunately, Dawn of X is the new status quo, and it's where everything's going. And uh, folks just don't seem too jazzed about it. Um, that makes me worry, because Marvel's not known for their patience. Current year Marvel, anyway, not known for their patience. So I feel like when they see a lack of interest... When maybe they start seeing less people reviewing the books online or even discussing the books online, they're going to be very quick to hit some sort of reset button. Uh, we're going to be left with more new number ones, a new take, a new, a new, who knows, continuity. You just don't know with Marvel these days, especially with their the properties that they seem to value less than others, which I think X-Men might fall into that column. So uh, I think they're definitely more um, open to experiment. With the X Men, as Dawn of, as House of X and Powers of X have pretty much firmly stated, because this is very experimental, uh, at least relatively speaking. So it makes me a little concerned that uh, that there are so many folks out there dropping uh, these books, the Dawn of X books, um, as being uh, not worth their time, not worth their money, just not interesting, and. Uh, I realize that we're in very, very strange times now. I mean, we had like a two-month break in shipments. Uh, I'm pretty sure X of Swords was supposed to be over by the by this point, or at least almost done. And uh, here we are, mid-September 2020, and uh, it hasn't even started yet. I, I get the feeling that we're in very strange times, and I'm hoping, hoping that Marvel will uh, be uncharacteristically patient and uh, maybe let you know X of Swords happen and. Maybe just let this continue as, as far as it can go. I think that uh, a problem that people have with the X-Men and have had with the X-Men forever now is that, you know, we have House of X and Powers of X. And I spoke about this with Jeremiah during episode five. That was just two books, right? I mean, you had two books, a solid single story between them, and they came out... Two to maybe three times a month So not a huge investment in time Or, relatively speaking, in money uh, Dawn of X launched with six books And for the first few months Buy, you know, twice a month books Double shipping books That's a lot to ask of people And that is uh, just a problem with the X-Men overreaching And just exploding into... You know, rather than just uh, organically building into multiple books, it's just an explosion of books. Um, 
I remember, you know, post, uh, post, what is it? Post Secret Wars, we had that run of Uncanny where the villains were, it was like Magneto and Sabretooth and Mystique or something. And we went through like Extraordinary X-Men and Amazing X-Men and uh, there were just so many damn titles. And I remember being very, very happy when they announced that they were going to just two. And that was X-Men Blue and X-Men Gold. And I'm like, oh, okay, you know, I can do that. That's just two books to follow. And then, of course, you find out they're bi-weekly. So, okay, that's four books a month you got to follow. And then you find out that they're going to be framed by Jean Grey, Iceman, Weapon X. Just a whole bunch of extra X titles. And it's just, at that point, you just start to figure, it's like, wow, that's too many. Um, And, uh, you know, uh, comics law here, not all of them are going to be good. They're going to be different levels of quality. And uh, that could be hard for um, someone who might just be getting interested in the X-Men, who might just be X-curious. It's a lot to ask. So, you know, Dawn of X being this sort of daunting behemoth of an imprint right now, I could totally see why people would uh, would start, you know, uh, where there'd be a little bit of attrition uh, in the readership. And that's unfortunate. Because I think if you'd launched with just X-Men, for let that go for a couple of months, then maybe, you know, you bring out a New Mutants or an X-Force. Or maybe you do X-Men and X-Force the first month. It just seemed like we were getting way too many titles uh, all at once. And uh, excitement is what excitement is. I'm fully aware that any sort of excitement about even this show that I'm talking right now... When we start getting into business as usual, and we're talking about, like, Fallen Angels number three, there's going to be a lot less people listening to that than is listening to uh, the Hoxpox uh, discussions. Just stands to reason. Um, there is, you know, overkill. There is oversaturation. And there's a point where you check out. And uh, unfortunately, uh, like Damien here and like a few other folks I've talked to, Dawn of X has had a few uh, opportune moments to check out. Um, I didn't think I was going to go on that tangent, but, uh, thank you, Damien, for your, for your email or, or for your comment on the blog. I, I very much appreciate it. And I, I look forward to having more, uh, discussions with, uh, with you and, and Wayne too, uh, everybody. Um, this has been a lot of fun getting, getting to chat with people. Uh, and we got a couple more bits of feedback here. Our good friend, Green Lantern HG, he says, I've been catching up with this, Chris. And like you, I left the X universe a long time ago, but now you're my guide through all of this. I'm on episode four, and I've been loving it so far. So thank you, Green Lantern, GL, or GLHG. It means a whole lot to me that you're listening. That's that's super cool, and I'm so happy you're enjoying this. And, uh, I mean, we're kind of like the blind leading the blind here, because <laughs> I don't know where we're headed, but I'm, I'm so happy you're along for the journey. Uh, finally, Jesse DeJong. He says, The info pages always reminded me of the cutaways from Hitchhiker's Guide. Not the most entertaining, but usually have some good info, especially the Sinister Notes. And it just so happens we looked at the Sinister Notes today, so how about that? And I agree. Um, They're not always the most entertaining. They're usually at least interesting to look at, unless they're just a quote. And I mean, those aren't info pages. Those are something different. Uh, Those aren't the Mueller-designed infographics or anything. Those are just, you know, quotes. (laughs) But, uh, no, the Sinister Notes... I think that was a really good way to deliver that information without uh, having to go too deep or give or have like a House of X special, House of X battle lines, sinister, you know, <laughs> nothing like that. So 
We didn't have to pay five bucks for an extra book or ten bucks for two issues. Uh, we just got a couple of pages that filled us in on some uh, some great information. So that's super cool. Uh, thank you, uh, everybody, for writing in and, and for uh, being part of the dialogue here. Now, speaking of dialogue, a little bit of an update on the uh, on my books club idea here. I just happened across a cheap copy of Extermination at a used bookstore just yesterday. Um, after uh, Andrew and Belfast recommended it, I uh, snapped it up just as soon as I saw it. It was a uh, it was uh, a must buy, um, and the price was too good to pass up. So I'm I'm really not sure how to put together a book club, but um, if I ever figure it out, uh, maybe Extermination will be the one we start with because that one. That one is one I've been wanting to read for a while because, uh, or ever since Andrew and Belfast told me what happens in it, um, it's one I've wanted to experience myself. So we'll be, uh, you know, saying goodbye to the time-displaced X-Men. Uh, we'll have a, a little bit of weirdness with Cable or Cables. So um, definitely something I want to check out. And if I can figure out how to do this, maybe maybe we'll do that as our first one, our first non-Hox Pox Docs book to uh, discuss here. So let me know if you have any thoughts on that or any ideas and uh, we'll see if we can't get that in motion. And uh, I think that's probably all I've got for you today. Uh, we went a little long today. A lot to talk about. A lot to uh, a lot to digest. So I thank you for hanging out for this uh, longer episode than usual. Hopefully uh, I can keep them a little bit breezier. Unless, unless, of course, we got a lot to talk about. In which case, we will. <laughs> but... Uh, if you'd like to reach out, you can do so at weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com or at Ace Comics on Twitter. Uh, these are going up on the blog, chrisisoninfiniteearths.com, so if you want to leave a comment there about anything, you know, I'm, I'm definitely up to having a dialogue there, here, there, and anywhere. Uh, I'm having a really good time with this. I'm really psyched about what's to come, uh, which is certainly not the sensation I was expecting when I started this uh, a week ago. I thought this was going to be something I did for a couple episodes and then was like, uh, I just can't do it, <laughs> and uh, and maybe just went like weekly or monthly or whenever I felt like it. But now I'm psyched and I'm ready to uh, ready to push through the third third of Hoxpox here and see how it all uh, winds up in the end here. So uh, one last time, thank you all for hanging out. Thank you all for reaching out, and uh, it's been it's been a real good time so far. And hopefully you'll join me as we uh, as we continue into the dawn of X proper. So till next time, I will talk to you again real soon. See ya.